Hi, this is Ben Lola, Back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Neufeld continues his series, God's Man, with a message entitled, The Masculine Need for Purpose and Vision. So let's turn in our Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1 as we begin our study. I think all men know the story. It's Mother's Day and Proverbs 31 is being read in your home church, which gives the characteristics of a godly woman. It's an excellent passage, and I've preached from it many times on Mother's Day. Before the service is done, thanks are expressed for moms, their godly example, their impact on our lives, the sacrifices they have made, and the virtues they've demonstrated. It's excellent stuff. I hope we keep doing it. You know, a little more than a month rolls by, and now it's Father's Day. And now the sermon has changed from praise to challenge. Fathers, you need to step up to the plate. I mean, after all, your kids need you. So does your wife, and so does your community and your church. You need to start laying aside your selfish desires and accept your calling. And sometimes men are even berated for those areas in their lives where they have fallen short. And as men roll their eyes, they know that no one would dare to take Mother's Day and berate women for where they have fallen short. And the results of a generation talking this way 61% of typical North American congregations are now female. Almost 25% of married church women will worship without their husbands. Men are staying home in droves, and it's simply not true that women have a higher capacity for spirituality than men. Both men and women are equally fallen, and both men and women can be equally reached. So what's going on? Why are thousands of men staying home? You know, if truth be told, a great many churches don't know how to reach out to men. Everything from the songs we sing to the fellowships we organize appeal to the feminine soul. Now, I'm all for appealing to the feminine soul. We must and we should. There aren't too many women in our churches. There aren't enough. You know, after all, God in his limitless wisdom created man in his image as male and female. But I don't think it's possible for human beings to reflect the image of God if both male and females are not celebrated and appealed to. So let's celebrate, sisters in Christ. But the sad truth is we've stopped appealing to men because to a large degree, we haven't understood men. Even the men who have led the church haven't understood men. Having eliminated the need for warriors like David and principled men like Daniel, and articulate defenders of the truth like Paul, we've created an ideal for men that has more to do with the kind of relationship that men don't naturally gravitate towards. And a great many men don't even understand themselves. They only know they don't feel comfortable in the kind of setting that they see in church. Let me take a few moments and share some characteristics of what men need. What I'm about to say is perhaps stereotypical, and you might wonder if I'm overexpressing myself. After all, with all tendencies, we can find exceptions, but there is, if you will, a movement in the soul of all men that moves in a given direction. For one, men tend to be singular, while women tend to be holistic. You know, both are good, and both have strengths, and both have weaknesses. You know the joke about the man watching a hockey game while little Johnny's diapers are leaking right in front of him and he hasn't even noticed kind of exemplifies the point. Men have an amazing ability to focus and shut the entire world out. Forget the shortcomings and the jokes for a moment and see the advantage. It allows men to zero in on a goal and not be distracted. Well, the weakness in that, well, we all know it. 
Men can have an affair and shut out their family and their wives and the consequences and all manner of other things. Imagine the situation this way. Men and women live in two very different houses. Women's houses are an open floor plan with the bedroom and the kitchen and the play area all integrated and flowing into each other. Men have various rooms for these matters. When they're in the bedroom, the door is closed to the kitchen. They don't integrate that. The key is not to get men to live in an open floor plan, for that would be to feminize them. The key is for men to bleed integrity into every room. For when they enter a room and shut the door to all other rooms, the key for men is to get that one room to cry out, holy to the Lord. That's how to speak to men. Men understand that. And the advantage in this? Some men have become significant scholars for the simple reason that they've shut the door on all other pursuits and have focused their vision on one singular subject matter. And the world has benefited. I want to say this to men. Don't you apologize for not living in a world with an open floor plan. It is true that you need women who can tell you about the open floor plan. But they need you to tell them about the singularity of a vision that eclipses all lesser things and sacrifices all things to an all-consuming vision. Another thing about men. Men need to be involved in a cause greater than themselves. They need to climb a hill and fight a battle and conquer a kingdom. When men have friendships, their friendships are best celebrated when they are a band of brothers. That, for instance, is why men have friendships around doing things like fishing and sports and riding motorcycles and playing in a musical band or even academic endeavors. Men do know about relationships and about having people over, sharing a meal and all that good stuff. But they won't form deep friendships until they share a common goal or passion with another man. Tell a band of men in your church that their friendship is over building an orphanage in Guatemala and a rich comradeship will emerge. Tell them that their friendship is over opening up their intimate feelings in a weekly meeting and you might find them staying home. It's the nature of male spirituality. See, one more thing. Before I talk to men about how to nurture godliness, all men know that they are driven by sight rather than emotion. Whether it's the look of a motorcycle or the look of a woman, men have a capacity for physical attraction that often leaves a woman wondering what's wrong with them. The key to holiness is not to get men to shut off their attraction to the physical, but to direct physical attraction in a godly fashion. Some of you have heard me say that men, all of us, can train our minds to be attracted to certain things and to be repulsed by other things. You can be fully turned on by your wife alone and your covenant with her. See, in my preaching, I continually return to that theme. But for now, because of this attraction to sight, men are vulnerable to some of the basest elements in our culture. And here I'm speaking specifically about pornography. Satan has ensnared many a man who doesn't understand himself or his masculinity and has a deep, hidden, and shameful secret. See, a great many men feel a deep sense of inner shame and self-loathing. Men, listen. God wants to heal you and set you free while giving you a vision for godly masculinity. 
You don't have to become a woman. And that's not a condescending statement, for it's good and wonderful to be a woman if God created you as a woman. But when God created the human race, he made the male and female. And one of the great challenges before you is to discover that there really is a godliness that is expressed in a testosterone-filled masculinity for the glory of God who made you. Well, where do we begin? Men, I want to introduce you to one of the great men of the Bible. His name's Nehemiah. If I were to characterize the spirituality of Nehemiah, I would do it by describing three characteristics. First is the vision he had for something that he must do. Something was wrong and it needed to be fixed. And Nehemiah saw it and knew his calling. He understood what he was about. Secondly, I would characterize Nehemiah as a leader. And the kind of leadership that he exemplifies is a leadership deeply rooted in integrity and courage. Integrity when it came to refusing to participate with those who participated in money lending and abusing the poor. And courage when it came to facing down the enemies of Israel. And the third area of leadership had to do with his prayer life. And as we know and will see, his prayer life was directly connected to the thing that he knew that God had called him to do and be. Now, before we dive right in, a little background to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and to the man himself. He lived in the Persian capital of Susa. He was a Jew who was a cupbearer to the king, the most powerful ruler in the ancient world. A cupbearer was no table waiter. Cupbearers put their own life on the line to ensure that the king's wine had not been poisoned. And as such, he gave leadership to any potential threat to the king. Furthermore, because of his trusted position, he was also in the position to provide counsel to the king on important matters, especially those related to security. And as we will see as we study this, his passion, his lifelong career served also to his own spirituality and his godliness. So what does it look like to be uniquely man, to embrace God's design and to use his design for his glory? We'll continue as we look at the example of Nehemiah coming up next. But before we return to Dr. Neufeld, we want to make sure you know that this series you're now listening to is being made available for free on CD to all those who would give us a call or email us with your request. So make sure to get your copy of God's Man for your own study to pass on to a friend or to place in your church library. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or email us with your request at info at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Proverbs 22 verse 29 says, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And that's a description of Nehemiah. Skilled, accomplished, respected, a man who gave himself fully to his work. And it's within this context that Nehemiah recognized that the work he did was to be surrendered fully to the glory of God. Here's an example of godly manhood. Nehemiah lived in the 400s BC. Israel as a nation had fallen to the Babylonian empire who had destroyed Jerusalem and burned down the temple and exiled the Jewish population in Babylon. 
But in 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire itself was defeated by the Persians. And then one year later, in 538 BC, according to the ancient prophecy in Isaiah, King Cyrus of Persia gave a decree that any of the Jews could go back to the land of their origin, the promised land. They were led by a man named Zerubbabel who helped them build the temple, and by 515 BC, the Jewish temple had been rebuilt. Eighty years after the first group of Jewish exiles had returned from Jerusalem, a second group of Jews living in Persia also took the trek and reclaimed their homeland. They were led by a priest by the name of Ezra, and they arrived in Jerusalem in 458 BC. Ezra found that the people had fallen into sinful practices, and so he led a revival, and many repented of their sins and returned to the law of God. But 13 years later, in spite of the revival, things were not as they should be. Nehemiah was paying attention to what God was doing in Israel. After all, he was a Jew, and Israel was the land of promise. As a godly and spiritual man, he took interest in the things that he knew were at the heart of God's purposes. He was looking for news. He was constantly searching out the designs of God. And so we read Nehemiah chapter 1, 1 to 3. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. I want you to notice how Nehemiah's interest is fueled by his friendship with other men who have precisely the same concern that he has. Furthermore, because of the position of influence that Nehemiah has, as a result of his connection to the king, he is the key man to give leadership. There's something about the male soul. It not only gives leadership, but men love to follow leaders, adding their leadership to a strong leader. No doubt Hanani and others would have looked to Nehemiah to use his position of influence to advocate for the people of God. And then rather than developing an immediate action plan and leaping into action, Nehemiah displays his heart for God. Verse 4 reads, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. From what follows, I noticed three aspects of his prayer. First, Nehemiah appeals to God on the basis of God's faithfulness in keeping the covenant he has made with his people. Second, Nehemiah confesses his own sins and the sins of his people. And third, Nehemiah recounts the promises of God that were directly related to the people of Israel. Now, from that, let me draw out three principles regarding male spirituality. First, men pray best when their prayers are related to a need or something that needs fixing. Let me explain. You know, every once in a while, my wife shares a burden with me that's related to a struggle that she has. It's taken me years of marriage to understand that many times she isn't asking me to solve an issue in her life, but just to demonstrate that I'm listening and that I understand. Can I share with you how hard that is? You know, I'm a fixer and I want to fix it, and she wants me to take the time and simply understand her. That is the interaction between male and female souls. Ah, that's amazingly complex and wonderfully mysterious. But men, hear me. 
one of the things that can ignite your prayer life is to begin to notice the needs, things that are unfixed around you. Perhaps it's in missions or your home church or in some other work in the kingdom. But if you want to revive your prayer life, do two things. Ignite a passion in your soul for a God-ordained vision related to a genuine need. Remember, you don't have to respond to this need yourself. You can form a band of brothers who see the same need. No doubt you're going to find that the vision and the need is related both to your giftedness and your passion. Do you have a friendship network related to your passion? Have a look around. Perhaps you're going to notice what other men are involved in, and you might find your heart drawn to what they're doing. Perhaps you take leadership yourself, but your task is to nurture friendships related to that sense of passion and begin to pray about it. And then begin to search out the Word and find out what God says about the very thing. And when you begin to pray, one of the things that men will regularly say is, who am I that I should respond to this need? And, you know, I don't even think I'm worthy. And that's why Nehemiah's example of confessing his sin is so relevant. And it's in this area of confession that there are times when the church of Jesus unwittingly discourages us from bearing our souls to God. You know, not long ago, I was preaching at a conference in Ontario, and during a breakout session, I ran into a young man who was asking me about my prayer life and the passion of my heart. And before we had done our conversation, I was struck by that young man's heart after God and felt the overwhelming coldness in my own heart when compared to his. I got up to preach and was still thinking about my conversation with him, and during my sermon, I mentioned the conversation and my need to confess to God the barrenness of my own passion for the things of God. Well, I was hardly done that sermon when I received a word from someone at that conference who said, you know, if that's how little passion you have for God, you certainly shouldn't be preaching. And here's my point. Whenever we let this attitude take root, the attitude that will not allow us to confess our sins and receive grace before God, when judgmentalism is attached to confession rather than a free offer of grace, God's people, and especially men, simply clam up. But men, don't let that dissuade you. The evil one wants you to believe that you will never measure up, that your sins will forever keep you from the service of the king, and that's a lie. Christ, your king and commander-in-chief, suffered on your behalf, that you might be presented before God whole and without blemish. You're invited to enter into the service of the one who gave his son on your behalf. Do not hesitate. You're not worthy, sure enough, but Christ is worthy. And you enter into his service not on your merits, but rather on the merits of Christ. Now back to Nehemiah's prayer. In verses 8 to 9, listen to his prayer. He prays, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen and make you dwell there. You know, it seems to me, Nehemiah understood what to do based not upon what he had envisioned, rather based upon his excellent knowledge of Scripture. Scripture itself dictated his course of action, and the hope that he nurtured in his soul was also dictated by the Scripture. 
And because God himself had spoken, Nehemiah finds hope and he finds optimism. See, all the principles of godly involvement in the Lord's service are here. A man of the word, a man of prayer, a man willing to humble himself in repentance, but a man motivated to actions by the commands of God and the needs of the hour. He knew what needed fixing, and by the grace of God, he was going to fix it. See, and that's how men are when God moves on them. Eventually, we're going to see through the rest of this study that Nehemiah is used by God to build the walls around Jerusalem and provide much-needed protection for the people of God. Nehemiah's leadership paved the way for the culture of Israel to be reclaimed. Had he not been there, the enemies of the Jews would have driven the people of God out one more time. See, all godly men need to capture just such a vision. And without godly men, godly women will languish. I know, I know, it's the other way around too. Without godly women, godly men will languish. But that's just the point. Without speaking to men to find out how to become and maintain our godliness, all of God's people are going to lose. Thank God for men who have understood their God and understand his calling on their lives. Thanks, John. Can I ask you a question? Is the Bible written in a way that really connects with men specifically? And is it possible that we're relegating the Bible to our bookshelves, and that's the reason why so many of us feel disconnected from God? Yeah, I want to say that the Bible really is a book that should naturally appeal to men. I mean, everything from conquering kingdoms and shutting the mouths of lions. And, you know, I mean, you just think about little boys when they hear the story of, of you know, Daniel in the lion's den or, or David fighting off against Goliath. I mean, that's all of the adventure that every little boy dreams about. And as we become men and we begin to recognize, uh, for instance, we might look at, at Paul's exemplary life and the, and the challenges that he faced and, uh, and the stand he made for the truth and uh, the abuse that he took. I mean, I, I think those are the kind of accounts that we need to retell and get that Bible off the, off the shelf and read it again. Thanks, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. This month, Dr. Neufeld wrote a letter about his experience of meeting Canadians across the country during our most recent radio tour across Canada. What for him was a great encouragement to know God is at work through the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, for the rest of the team was evidence that individual lives are being touched and transformed through the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Neufeld. God's Word is powerful, it convicts, convinces, and offers the life-changing message of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so privileged to be a part of God's plan to reveal Himself to the nations. We're so grateful for the support of so many of you who make this ministry possible. And we're looking for your help in the month of June to reach our fiscal year-end goals and to launch into a new fiscal year embracing the increased opportunity that presents itself across Canada and internationally. This June specifically, a small group of men and women have pledged a matching gift of $100,000 to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $256,000. This match simply means that for every dollar, $10, $100, $1,000 you give, they will match dollar for dollar up to $100,000. What an incredible impact this would make. 
So can I encourage you to consider a generous gift this month and join us in growing the Bible teaching ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or make your gift online at backtothebible.ca.